Mr. Speaker. You're at the intersection of business and politics. This is the 14th and G podcast from Melman Consulting. Now, here's our host, Dean Hinkson. Well, thank you for setting your podcast out of 14th and G. I am your host, Dean Hinkson, coming to you from the worldwide headquarters of Melman Consulting, high atop the historic Colorado building in downtown Washington, D.C., joined once again by these guys, Republican Bruce Melman and Democrat David Thomas. We're going to cover 2023 in 23 minutes. Bruce, David, welcome to 14th and G. Happy Easter, Dean. Thank you, Dean. It's uh, good to be here today. Well, and a happy Passover to you, Bruce. To be fair. (laughs) (laughs) I know a congressman who'd like to attend that next year. (laughs) Well, boys, where to begin? Uh, At last check, Congress is in the second week uh, of the Easter break, slated to return next week. Plenty has happened in Congress's absence. Uh, Last week was a hell of a year. Hell of a year, including, uh, including, of course, what's dominating the news. Asa Hutchinson, former Arkansas governor, is running for president. <laughs> Huge. <laughs> Anything else? I think it's going to go about as well as the Mike Huckabee campaign. <laughs> Maybe don't start by announcing to Jonathan Carl on someone else's show, but uh, that's just me. No, of course. Why don't we just why don't we just take a look at uh, a couple of the big tentpole issues Congress is going to deal with when when they come back? Uh, before we do get to what's dominating the news and and late night television, uh, we've got government funding. We've got NDAA. I think the debt limit it's it's maybe not going to be a live fire exercise in the in the April May work period, but boy, they're sure going to be lining up the chessboard. Uh, because we're we're getting close to when Treasury will exhaust extraordinary measures, and we, we get close to hitting that debt limit sometime uh, this summer. So if there's a deal to be had, they're going to have to have to work it out. Uh, McCarthy, Speaker McCarthy, uh, seems to be trying to get the White House's attention on this. Uh, he says, "Hey, I'm here at the table. Why aren't you at the table, Mr. President?" Uh, he's not at the table because he has not brought his homework with him, uh, and I think that's what the uh, this this uh, where we're at sort of loggerheads here is that the uh, White House wants to see McCarthy's uh, plan before they uh, negotiate, and McCarthy wants to sit down and negotiate before he presents his plan. So we uh, seem to have a chicken and egg situation with the White House here. I agree with you that. I don't think we're going to see an immediate resolution to the debt limit issue, which is going to get scary as we get into uh, May and and closer to the summertime. The Treasury Department has said June uh, without specifying a date for the for the debt uh, ceiling being hit. A lot of posturing, a lot of going back and forth. Uh, I think at the end of the day that um, Senator McConnell, uh, who is uh, recovered from his fall uh, earlier this year, is going to get involved in these negotiations because he and the president have done this before. And I think he's going to be a critical player at the end of the day. Bruce, the new Republican majority in the House, uh, they've they've speaking of ish ish, <laughs> right? I mean, they've picked some low hanging fruit. They've established the China Committee. Uh, they've passed some. They've passed some right to life measures. Uh, this is where the rubber meets the road of this bare thin five seat majority. Uh, when we get into issues like the debt limit, and uh, Speaker McCarthy is having not unexpected, but he's having issues, uh, you know, keeping this uh, keeping this uh, caucus together. Well, look, I'm not sure if it's rubber meets the road or trash can meets the dumpster fire, but that's a hard issue. Like you could, 
almost anybody you put into the role of the Republican conference right now of trying to bring together folks, I think are united in wanting to see some kind of fiscal discipline. I mean, the federal debt is up by a third um, in the last uh, six years, um, some of which was under Trump, a lot of which was COVID, some of which was uh, additional $1.9 trillion beyond COVID measures uh, for COVID put forward by the Biden administration. But we kind of have a debt problem as a nation, and there is no plan. Now, the problem is, as DT points out, it's not like there is a Republican unified plan. Um, and no matter what plan you come forward with within the GOP, you will have your factions disagreeing with one another on you know, whether it's adequate or whether it's not adequate. So I'm not quite sure who on the Republican side, I know DT's answer is Nancy Pelosi, but on the Republican side, I'm not sure who could play these cards, which are really hard cards to play anymore. Uh, sadly, every time I wargame it in my head, I end up thinking back to when TARP failed before it passed, right. where the market vomits a few thousand points, and that is the uh, stimulus needed for Congress to decide, yeah, we don't need to have a, a self-induced uh, depression. The market would have to vomit several thousand points to be, uh, I think the market, I think the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 800 points uh, or thereabouts in 2008 when the TARP vote failed. And that was enough to, that. I mean, that that was many orders of magnitude less than, than what the market's valued at today. Well, I'll tell you what, I can tell you one person that the speaker doesn't have confidence in that get this done is his own budget committee chairman, Congressman Arrington, who he threw under the bus last week in the New York Times, saying that he has no confidence in his ability to get a deal and he's not involved. Even the easy things have been tough for Speaker McCarthy to start off the year here. The House has basically done almost nothing. They got a symbolic energy bill done that won't go anywhere in the Senate. They got the China bill done, which is the one place where there does seem to be some bipartisan agreement. I can't think of anything else, Bruce, that, that they've got done here. And again, this is I think back to when uh, Newt Gingrich took over the House. Uh, he had his 100-day plan, and they passed the Contract for America. They got every one of those things done After in the After 40 first two years days. of Democratic rule, it kind of When Speaker Pelosi ideas. took over the House, she got her entire 606 done in 100 hours, if you'll remember. We're three months into the year, and, and the Speaker can't seem to get anything done. I think his days are numbered. Although, remember, Newt had a Republican Senate. Speaker Pelosi had a Democratic Senate. There's a lot different set of chess pieces and, and positions on the board if you're if you control both chambers in, in Congress. When you don't, uh, McCarthy is moving forward with the things that can unify the conference first and foremost, such as the China Committee, which, by the way, is pretty significant. I don't know. I, I, he, he, there's a lot more to do than just set up uh, one committee in Congress here, and and a lot of things that have to get done. Uh, I'm very concerned about the. The, the House's ability to uh, move the debt ceiling or anything else for that. The NDAA is moving apace. The budget guys are being budget guys like they are. I mean, the big problem, of course, is when you go downstream from debt ceiling, you're not going to not extend the debt ceiling, which means you need to do something that's budget related. And that, as we've seen for 20, 30 years, is very hard because many elected officials believe, as then Senator Obama did, just simply ratifying it's a failure of leadership. Well, uh, it, it always is refreshing to have Republicans uh, regain their belief in uh, fiscal responsibility when Democrats are in the White House. <laughs> well, uh, and, and Democrats are in the White House, uh, but for how long is an open question. Got, hey, uh, sir. Hey, sir. We've got some movement uh, on the Republican side. Got a few declared candidates, former Governor Asa Hutchinson, uh, announced uh, former U.N. Ambassador, South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, and of course, uh, former President of the United States, Donald John Trump. 
who's now embroiled in a criminal case in uh, in in New York City. He was indicted. Uh, he was indicted last week uh, on thirty over thirty counts of falsifying business records, raised to a felony by we don't know what uh, another uh, another additional crime here. It seems uh, not that there's not a lot of there there swirling around the former president uh, on a lot of things. Uh, with regard to the elections, with regard to January 6th, with regard to uh, the records and, and materials he took with him from the White House. But this seems like thin gruel by the Manhattan DA. I don't know why you're looking at me. It's bad enough they made poor Mitt Romney defend uh, defend Trump in this silliest. Look, t- the broader thing that I worry about is, first, this makes people that much more upset about politics you know, a lot of older folks will remember when Bill Clinton was lying under oath in court, which is a crime about sex. The idea was, well, it's a personal sexual relationship, so the kind of traditional perjury, whatever, shouldn't apply. You now have Republicans who, who did not, you know, uh, who, who did think it should, uh, the law should apply back then, somehow thinking the law shouldn't apply right now. To me, if anything, what shocks me is uh, that there wasn't better command and coordination by the Democrats. Because uh, of all the cases that could be brought against Trump, this is the weakest of the potential field. Maybe the Manhattan DA tried to move fastest to move first because he knew in Georgia and others there's, you know, there's more smoke and potential fire. Well, look, I mean, I don't know if this one is the weakest or not, but I will tell you this. There's going to be more, whether, Dean, you correctly point out, whether it is in Georgia whether it is here in D.C. Uh, there is so much illegality swirling around this guy, and I don't know if the chickens have come home to roost or not. But here's what I do know. For the past week, the only person anybody's ever talked about in the political sphere here in Washington, D.C. is Donald Trump. Nobody's talking about Nikki Haley. Nobody's talking about Asin Hutchinson. And most importantly, nobody is talking about Ron DeSantis. Donald Trump is going to be the nominee of the party, maybe even if he is in prison. Uh, he was right when he said it seven, eight years ago now. He could shoot somebody in Fifth Avenue and it wouldn't make a difference. He is going to run away with this nomination here. And I, I, it, it, I'm like at a loss for words that his illegality seems to make him even more popular with the Republican base. David, uh, forgive me if I hear a little bit of hopefulness uh, in your tone. Democrats uh, have played a dangerous game in uh, congressional primaries, in Senate primaries. Uh, it has worked out for you electorally, getting the most radical Republican candidate nominated. Is, is there a little bit of hopefulness here amongst Democrats that you do get to run against Donald Trump again? No, absolutely not. Nobody, uh, I, I wouldn't want to risk the uh, outcome of him being president again, because I don't think our country could take it. We've got a pretty resilient system that was able to uh, piece it together for four years. I'm not sure we could take another four. I think the most important thing that the De- that Democrats and Republicans should keep in mind is that since I've been allowed to vote, uh, which the first election I was allowed to vote in was 1992, Republicans have won the popular vote exactly once. And I am 52 years old. Damn. That is a big <laughs> problem for the Republicans here, that they are a dwindling party uh, that is running to the fringe and if they nominate Donald Trump again, I my, my hope here is where the country would end up is uh, with the Democrats holding the White House and Republicans really having to uh, uh, look back at themselves to see where they've ended now, up. You do know that Republican candidates got 2% more votes nationwide for the House where the whole country was voting than Democratic candidates, right? I All I know is, is the only president who has won the popular vote since I've been allowed to vote 
is George W. Bush in 2004, Bruce. That's the only one. Every other one has been Democrats. That is a, a wave you're not going to be able to stop. Unfortunately for my good friend David, we do not elect presidents by the popular vote. We elect them by the Electoral College. And President Trump did win that election in 2016. Uh, he spent the next four years, one of the biggest legacies of his administration uh, is populating the federal courts. And we were all reminded of that this week when uh, a federal judge, Texas, Texas uh, struck down. When in the, doubt, Texas. When in doubt, it's in Texas. Fifth Circuit. Uh, struck down FDA approval of mefprestatone, the, uh, the the morning after pill, the abortion pill. Struck it down, and and now uh, abortion. Uh, add to that the uh, add to that the Supreme Court, uh, state Supreme Court election in Wisconsin, uh, which seemed to really revolve around pro life issues, and uh, and and abortion politics is really uh, top of mind here. Well, and look, it's it's for Dems perversely in a lot of ways a gift that keeps on giving politically. Um, it's one of the things that motivated the Dem base. It's one of the reasons the Dems held the Senate in 2022. You know, Republicans lose votes in places like Kansas. It's a 60-40 issue. And if you say not only you want to be on the 40% side, but you want to go to the extremes of that, just like when Dems go to unlimited abortion for any reason at any point in a pregnancy, they end up losing. When Republicans go to, you know, no exceptions that you're allowed to get an abortion, they lose. And uh, this is one that people are mistaken if they think isn't going to have a huge impact in 2024. Republicans need to come up with what a position or what a story is that doesn't seem extreme to independent voters and to women in suburbs, or uh, Joe Biden will be 500 years old in his uh, finishing his second term. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, there are two things that came to mind for me on this, this case when it came out here. One is the great irony of the fact of the number of questions I'd heard from senators on the Judiciary Committee over the years asking prospective judges, will you legislate from the bench? I cannot think of another example uh, that would fall into legislating the bench than outlawing a drug that has been approved by the FDA for over 20 years. Uh, this is an ideological guy who's, uh, you know, really uh, doesn't appear to be following the law anymore, but just doing what he believes uh, in uh, because that is his, his political position. Uh, unfortunate. Um, the second thing I thought was notable was those same senators on the Judiciary Committee, uh, Republicans both in the House and the Senate, have been very quiet uh, since this ruling came out last Friday. Um, I, Republicans nation nationwide do not want to talk about this, and yet this is the outcome of the Roe v. Wade decision. They're going to have to talk to about it more and more because of these cases uh, that are coming up in state houses across the country or in the federal courts here where uh, the, the, the fallout of the Roe v. Wade decision is going to haunt Republicans for years and years to come. It is energizing the Democratic base in ways that uh, we certainly haven't seen. I would be very concerned if I were a uh, uh, Republican uh, uh, you know, candidate, uh, House member, senator in a, a, in, in a state that had any of these issues up uh, in 2024. Well, what's interesting about it, too, is you're seeing Democratic operatives trying to get abortion uh, referenda on ballots, which right. is which is smart of them to do, you know, in the same way when they would back the more extreme Republican candidate, the theory being put them on the ballot, we're guaranteed to win. They recognize you put an abortion question on the ballot, you will get turnout that's very pro-Democratic. It's it's shrewd. And unlike uh, backing the extremist candidates, it's not uh, it doesn't seem uh, playing with fire in the same way. So let's I mean, it's. Unless ours can come up with a better strategy, this is a headwind in 2024. 
It's a headwind. It's a headwind nationally, but it, at some point, and and DT makes a good point here. I mean, Republicans spent the better part of the last fifty years arguing for this issue to be returned to the states, uh, and these these constant efforts to refederalize the the abortion question, wherever you come down on it, uh, it seems to be the most uh, the most disastrous course uh, for Republicans, but. No man is an island, and, uh, and and nor is the United States of America. We live in a world with some very interesting things happening. The Chinese uh, Navy just completed uh, uh, weeks-long uh, naval exercises in the, in the straits around Taiwan. A lot of saber-rattling there. Uh, the Chinese seem to have cut a deal with the Saudis to buy a bunch of oil, denominated in yuan, not in dollars. Uh, an, another yet another attempt, I guess, to subvert the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. Uh, the war in Ukraine continues apace. Bruce, what's the most Congress seems most consumed by China? We've got the we've got the China committee. So many issues surrounding, uh, you know, what is and is not acceptable for American businesses, particularly doing business in China, continues to be a big focus, right? Absolutely, it's it's uh, it's also the most bipartisan issue. You know, it's one where you regularly see uh, R's and D's working together, collaborating. You know, sure. Uh, at the presidential level, everybody wants to be more of a hawk than uh, than uh, the other side. But here we're seeing cooperation. The United States has a sees it as a need for a three-pronged strategy. We've got to run faster. So it's things such as the chips or infrastructure investments, though, you know, there's growing concern, including by the Bloomberg editorial pages. Uh, we're adding so many red, uh, you know, red tape requirements to the CHIPS Act that we're not going to accomplish the core goal of CHIPS because we're also worried about so many social policies that go with it. But run faster. Number two, slow down the other side. That's export controls. That's outbound investment restrictions. And number three, put the geopolitical band back together. Put your allies, have your friends, you know, whether it's uh, trade deals or, or things like the AUKUS national security deal. The Chinese contrast with that at the same time or first... Uh, they're trying to, with the Saudis, with the Iranians, with the Russians, with the Latin America and all the countries there, uh, with Africa, they're trying to build their own uh, geopolitical caucus, number one. Number two, they're trying to run faster and become more sanction-proof and self-sufficient, particularly in areas such as semiconductors. And finally, um, they're going to continue to throw matches at the pools of gasoline on our domestic discourse. Uh, because anything they can do to keep us divided and angry, which is not does not take a lot of work, <laughs> it's not too hard. Is uh, is is smart for them? Because, I mean, China is not planning to go quietly into the uh, into the ash heap of the Soviet Union if they can help it. <laughs> what I found most interesting in the news is that Elon is op Elon Musk is opening a giant battery gigafactory in Shanghai, Shanghai. which doesn't feel like an environment where uh, you know policies to encourage technological decoupling are are uh, are necessarily taken hold. Well, Bruce, what, what, how do you see this? I mean, at some point, whether it's five years or, or 50 years from now, we reach some sort of detente, uh, some sort of uh, level of mutual comfort between the U.S. and China, because China's not the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union economically, uh, in, in, the, in the world of the Cold War, was almost a non-entity. Uh, they were not really a trading partner. They, they could be ignored. China can't be ignored. I mean, if, you know, 20% of their of their billion plus population is middle class, these are enormous markets that, that, that American companies want access to. But where does it all settle out between the U.S. and China where we were able to live in the same world together? Well, look, let's hope we get to the point where it is a uh, 
finding a way to coexist. Partly, at, as of today, I'd say we need President Xi, who is uh, over 80 and a smoker and with a stressful job. We need him to be off the scene, and we need him to be replaced by a Gorbachev-type figure and not by a worse uh, autocrat. You know, it seems to me hard to get anywhere as long as Xi is president for life. He's a dangerous guy. You know, the uh, what's a really I just finished a book by Hal Brands and a really interesting observation was your geopolitical foes aren't most dangerous when they're rising with a bright future. It's when they perceive the future as being worse than the present that they're more likely to strike. And that was true of World War One, uh, pre-World War One Germany. That was true of uh, Japan in 1941. If you take a look at China's demographic future, it's a disaster because the one child policy was terrible. When they look geopolitically, they see they see Japan rearming, and they realize the future is going to be a lot tougher for them to accomplish things than that it potentially is in the present right now. You know, they take a look at the, what they've despoiled their climate. That's not going to get better. Um, they may be as dangerous in the 2020s as they're ever going to be because we will have retooled our military and otherwise be in a far better position to deal with the Chinese danger by the 2030s. So it's going to take a very careful, cautious uh, hand and playing the hand very carefully by the United States, by Western allies, to keep calmer heads prevailing. David, let's uh, let's close it out, uh, turn it back around real quick to domestic politics. Uh, as you noted at the top of the show, it was the East White House Easter egg roll. <laughs> I may have dinged Governor Hutchinson for announcing his presidential run to Jonathan Carl on the Stephanopoulos show, but President Biden announced his to Al Roker. So, uh, yeah, no, look, the, the president hasn't uh, officially announced. And as we have discussed before, I don't think he needs to. There is no pressure from the left, the center, or the right, or anywhere else in the Democratic Party of somebody running against it. RFK. There, uh, we're not counting that one. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a sad development. So, look, you know, the White House staff is doing what they should be doing, which is they are uh, putting him in a position to have a campaign that's ready to go whenever he wants to announce. I don't think he needs to announce until much later into the, the into the fall. Why do it? He can do exactly what he's doing now. He's in Europe this week. Have at it. I, I think it's interesting. Uh, Republican presidential wannabes are going to all the traditional places, right? Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Pompeo. They're they're in New Hampshire. They're in Iowa. Uh, the the only one uh, legitimate Democratic presidential wannabe uh, I can think of is. California Governor Gavin Newsom. Where does he go? Florida. <laughs> to troll <laughs> Governor DeSantis. <laughs> That's, uh, I think he's enjoying himself going down to uh, to Florida and doing that. Look, uh, Governor Newsom's a pretty uh, savvy political fellow. And, uh, uh, you know, I, he, he's waiting in the wings for his opportunity to run at some point. We'll see when that is. Well, he certainly does have the uh, the square jaw. Uh, So we shall see. We shall see what else transpires here in 2023. And we will be back on 14th and G to cover all of it in 23 minutes or less, or it's free. Bruce Melman, David Thomas, thanks for joining me on 14th and G. Sorry for cussing, Dean. (laughs) (laughs) I'm embarrassed. (laughs) Thanks for listening to today's podcast, brought to you by the lobbying firm of Melman Consulting. For more, just type 14th and G podcast into your favorite search engine or look for 14th and G wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. Beam me up, Mr. Speaker.